I'm going to ask you to stand with me one more time, please. We have one verse of Scripture. As we depart from the Gospel of Mark, hitting the pause button on that, we'll pick back up with that the first Sunday in February. Today we're starting our new Advent series called The Story, which is basically the story of stories, all of history being Jesus' own story. And uh, as we begin, we're going to be looking at the book of Genesis. Uh, I'd like you to find one of these screens where it's comfortable for you. We want to read one verse together. Here we go. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Let's pray. Mighty God, we thank you for the promise that's found in a seed form right there. In that spot where Adam messed it all up. God, you came and walked in the garden in the cool of the day. You pronounced judgment on sin. You spoke a curse, but in that curse there was the seed of a promise. The gospel in seed form that the seed of the woman was coming who would bruise the head of the serpent. Jesus, we thank you that that is you, that you are the man, Christ Jesus. You are the God-man. You are Emmanuel. You are the hinge point of history on which everything hangs. By you all things consist and are held together. We lift you up in praise and worship this morning. Father, thank you today that as we lift up this time together in prayer and worship, Lord, for all of those that are in need today, we pray you strengthen them, heal them, touch them. Lord, as we worship in this place this morning, we thank you that you have saved us and delivered us and redeemed us and set us free from the penalty and the price of sin. Thank you, Jesus, that you've given us a new life because of the new and living way through your blood. Lord, as we celebrate this today, I just acknowledge before you and everyone hearing this that I cannot do anything apart from you. It is only through you, Holy Spirit, that you move and operate, touch hearts, transform us, let the gospel be clear. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of your heart, be my heart, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. And it's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Everybody said, Amen. you may be seated this morning in the presence of the Lord. He who is to become the lamb slain for the foundation of the world, we find out in the last book of the Bible, in the closing segment, Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, that Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. So this thing begins in the mind of a great thinker. I want to give credit where credit's due. Alex just always amazes me with this Phenomenal eye and creativity. He's the one who, do, who pictured this, this great graphic of the story. And the story is written in red to represent the blood of Jesus. And it's, it's basically God sitting at the cosmic typewriter. And he starts to put this thing together in which the story of the ages is about to unfold. In eternity past, the father said to the son, who will go for me? And the son stood up and they made what theologians call an intertheistic covenant among the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God appropriated your salvation before the world began. The Son came in history and in time and acquired it. He paid the specific price for your sins and mine. And then the Holy Spirit is now actively involved in His work, applying it into the life of every believer. It's kind of like... You may think I'm Adrian Rogers this morning, but it's three A's. The, the appropriation by the Father, the acquisition by the Son, the application 
by the Holy Spirit. And that's the work of salvation before, in, in eternity past, in time with Jesus, and right now personally in your life and in mine. We're on the end of that, receiving it, but when we look at the story as it begins to unfold in the once upon a time, and this is no fairy tale, this is the truth of the ages, the, the thinker thought, his Thoughts, he whose thoughts are higher than my thoughts and whose ways are higher than my ways. We have an opportunity to glimpse into the mind of God because through ages and generations, every sage and prophet and poet began to put to words the things which he saw. The glimpse of the picture of heaven when God would push back the clouds of darkness and would shine a glimmer of light and they would get a picture, a prophetic understanding of the one who was to come. Because it was in the garden in the place where Adam sinned where God stopped and pronounced judgment upon the sin. It was the rebellion of man himself because that's the very nature of sin. When man chooses to leave his place and his station and attempts to take the place of God, when I substitute God with myself, that's the very spirit and the nature of sin. God recognized that and he flipped it on mankind. And God made the choice to leave his place and substitute himself in the place of man. God came from heaven and became man. Emmanuel, God with us. The, the word was made flesh and he dwelt among us. And the message says he moved into the neighborhood. That's God taking the place of man as a substitute. And when he does it to reverse it, it opens the door of our salvation. When I do it, it's sin. When I take God's place, when God reaches down to become man and take my place, it becomes salvation. Adam and Eve blew it. They're put down into a perfect place. At the end of every creation day, God stopped and said, Behold, it's good. Creatures of the field, firmaments of the heaven, oceans scooped out, starry skies to behold the goodness and the handiwork and the firmament of God revealing the glory of the Lord. Everything that they were to observe, God finished it in completion and totality before He knelt down and with the dust of the earth and then breathed into with God's breath himself and caused man to become a living soul and then out of his side birthed a one man, womb of man, one who would be particularly suited for the purpose of walking alongside and being a helpmeet. That place Adam himself became a prophetic picture of the one, the second, the last Adam who would hang on a cross and from his side God would at the place of his rib birth his bride, the church, from Jesus Christ. In this very place we know the story. God said at the end of every creation day, behold it's good and it's every imaginable kind of fruit and berry and nut and wildlife that is propagating in an indescribable kind of way. It's it's, it's National Geography, it's, it's, the, it's the History Channel, it's all of this just magnified with brilliant color because every imaginable flower, everything that would demonstrate the beauty and the painting hand of God, amazing sunrises and glorious sunsets, cool breezes in the cool of the day, God walking with them, all of these amazing, beautiful representations of the creation of God and His expression, delighting every kind of desire that this man and this woman could ever have for every taste, every sweet, every sour, every bitter, whatever kind of fruit, a lemon and a lime and an orange and an apple and, and cherries and berries and all of these kinds of things and great trees and beautiful things to build out of and creation to begin to take dominion as high as the birds flew and as deep as the fish swam. Adam and Eve had 
commandment and dominion of God over that creation. God stepped back and said, all of this is yours. He finished it first. He didn't put them down in the middle of a project that was yet to be done. He completed it and then set them down into the provision, the providence of God. In the middle of those circumstances, God said, all this is yours. You can have anything you want, but there's one thing here in this garden that is mine. It's marked for me. I believe that God intended in due time to mature Adam and open his understanding to make him aware. Because I want you to know something. God begins with us, He began with Adam and Eve in innocence and then they fell and lost their innocence. And then in regaining it, recapturing it, we have the restoration of something greater which is purity. We want to guard the innocence of our children as long as possible. But there comes a point when innocence gives way to naivete and naivete is dangerous. We want to train children. We want to mature them. We want them to recognize that there is very real pernicious evil in the world. It doesn't mean that in order to train them that we expose them to the depths of degradation and depravity, but we make them aware that something now in them because they have been bought by the blood of the Lamb and they are not their own, they have something greater than innocence. It's purity in Christ. Innocence is not being aware of how vast the evil problem is. Purity is knowing that it's there but choosing to walk with God anyway. That's what purity is. Recognizing all of the opportunities, the temptations, the lusts, the sin in every kind of factor that is available to us but choosing to say, God, I choose you. Bless are the pure in heart for they shall see God. That's what the Beatitude says. In that spot, while in that place, I wrote a, pro- I wrote a poem some 20 years ago from the loft of the little house that we lived in on Carlisle. It says, while on that spot and in that place, God made a promise to Adam's race. He talked about the one that you are in strife. She will bear the seed of eternal life. And it was a, it was a poem about the, the story of God, how before the foundation of the world, He chose this one and He began to move and operate and The stage is set here at this point. God is setting the stage because we have a man and a woman who began in innocence, but now they have rebelled. They've chosen to put themselves in the substitutionary place of God to rebel. Nothing magical. There, there, There was no potion in the sense of a bright, polished, shiny red apple that caused them to be put into a place of some kind of magical sleep. Nothing to do with that. This whole thing was legal. It was all about what they did in disobedience. That was the greatest act of sin. That was high treason to God who had provided everything for them. In the face of that, they said, you know what? We're going to make our own decisions. We're going to call our own shots. Nobody's going to be the boss of me. That's what Adam and Eve did. And they partook of it and disobeyed God. And God came walking looking for them and said, Adam, where are you? Now, you've got to realize that God already has the greatest GPS tracking system in the universe. He knows right where in the garden Adam is. Anytime God asks a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. I don't believe it was a geographical location question of where are you in the garden. I believe he was sensing God already knew. He who knows everything, who is omniscient himself, recognized that a wall of separation had come, a, a, a sinful declaration of Adam's treason. And God was saying, Adam, where are you with me? Where are you in relationship to me? cool of the day. We've normally walked together. We've shared. We've, we've, we've opened our hearts together. And God of the universe to His creation, creator and creation, walking hand in hand together. God comes walking and Adam and Eve do what we know the story tells us. They hide. They attempt to cover up in religious foliage, fig leaves, religious programming, 
church services, activity, doing all the things that the right folks do in the Bible Belt or in Southern Churchianity, volunteering for this program, doing that thing, putting on an apron, and that's fine. Religious aprons are fine as long as you don't turn around because if you'll remember Granny's apron, it didn't cover the backside. And they've lost the glory. They, they, they've lost the glow fuzz. That's just my own made-up term. They've, they've lost this effulgence, this outshining of the presence of God that has been upon them. It's like the whole lamp has gone dim. In that moment, they realize that they are naked, and so they cover themselves. This is what we do in religious demonstration. Adam and Eve in that moment recognize their sinfulness and they try to cover it up. And God in that moment does something very unusual. In pronouncing a curse, He stops and curses the serpent. He curses Eve and the, the delivery of children in the future and Adam in the ground and He's going to sweat by His brow and He's going to be frustrated. All of this tells us in the book of Romans, but that he who made everything subject to vanity is also subjected the same in hope, that God gives us hope. Come on, somebody say hope. hope. Basers did an amazing job this morning reminding us of the hope that is set before us. The Bible says in Colossians 1.27, the mystery that's been hidden from ages and generations now is made manifest among you, His saints. That is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in and among you all. It's not just Christ in me singularly, but it's Christ in and among a whole people, a body of people made in His image, a body of people that are now bone of His bone and flesh of His flesh. Yes, there's an army rising up. Sing it, Abigail. I'm telling you this morning, there's a warrior rising up on the inside of you. That warrior came... That warrior was longed for. As Bernie sang, Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. It, it's groaned out in a minor key. Oh, come, desire of nations and bind, bind our hearts that are broken and fragmented. And for four millennia, they're crying out, crying out to God. And prophets are declaring, getting a glimpse of this one who's to come. And it all starts in this place where God sets the stage and He says, The seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. It was a promise. It was what we call the protoevangel. It's the, it's the very first glimpse of the gospel right there in the garden where they had just sinned. God planted a, a gospel seed and a tree would go up, grow up in its place and it would be the wood of that tree on which the lamb would be born and he would be slain and nailed to it with three spikes. And the fruit of it from that tree would be your salvation and mine. But we look back because they don't yet see that. We have, we have the blessed ability to be able to look back in time and we see that this Savior didn't come at the beginning of time nor did He choose to wait till the very end of history to come but He came in the middle of history as the hinge point of history on which everything would flow out of that center. It would, he would be the vortex, the very center of which all history would be affected by. Those longing for Him finally saw the realization of the promise of God that faith had apprehended and taken hold of. Those who now come behind Him look back to the cross for the work that He has already done, not one that He will do for you, but one that He has already accomplished. Everybody say, it is finished. But even in that, we're looking back. Old Testament saints don't have that advantage. They're looking forward through dim eyes of faith, not by sight. They're not walking by sight, but they're walking by faith. They're walking by the hope that has been birthed in their heart because of a promise that began all the way back in the garden and before God ever pushes them out of the garden, God Himself slays some animals and strips their skin and puts the skin of those innocent animals around the backs of those guilty 
men and women. Then innocent blood was shed in substitution in the place for right there in that garden is the first sacrifice that gives us the prophetic picture. It, it's rich with symbol. It is, it is wrapped up in this, this prophetic painting of God that continues to grow and it's a panorama that stretches across centuries that become millennia. Once in a while a psalmist will begin to write and catch a glimpse into the heaven and hear the sound that is coming over the balcony of heaven and start to sing. And David picked that up and Moses, 1,500 years before him, picked it up. And five or seven, 500 years before him, 400 and something years before him, we've got Abraham who God encounters and grabs hold of him and starts reaching out to him. By the way, he was not seeking God. He was not, God wasn't holding seeker-sensitive services somewhere because Abraham was a moon worshiper. He was in Babylon. He was in Ur of the Chaldees, worshiping the moon. He wasn't in sonship. He was in moonship, worshiping the crescent. All of that religion that comes and is motivated by that kind of a particular Eastern worldview out of the Middle East, this is the very thing that Abraham was in the middle of. He wasn't a Jew. There was no Jew. He became that because his heart was made right with God when he believed the promise that God spoke to him when God came knocking on his door first. Look at your neighbor and say, God always makes the first move. Now, if you don't get anything else from me today, I want you to get this out of the book of Genesis, right underneath setting the stage on your notes. If you didn't happen to get this when you came in, I have a full page here and don't, don't be afraid. I'm not going to preach all that. This is a diagram to help you. Right under that very first line where it says setting the stage, there's a line right there that says God will take this mess and make it a message. Everybody say that with me right now. God will take my mess. Say it with me. God will take my mess and make it a message. If you don't hear anything else, there's enough gospel promise in that right there because of what God has done with Adam's mess and given us the message that is in Jesus Christ. You don't have anything that comes in line with the influence and the effect that Adam's sin had. It's, it's, it's pervasive. It's touched every one of us. And Jesus Christ has turned that around because He has chosen to substitute Himself as God and become man and open the door of salvation for us. And then you start to march through the book of Genesis and you see that in this amazing book... It's really about five or six guys, pretty much, for the most part. You've got Adam, who blows the whole thing. He's in a perfect environment with an amazing wife, drop-dead gorgeous, raising children. And it's amazing how in that perfect environment, they still raise two children and one of them kills the other one. Look at your wife and say, you know what, baby, our family's not as dysfunctional as I thought it was. How many of you know people are just people? Say that with me. People and every one of them have problems. There is not a perfect one in this room. If perfection were the requirement for being in this room, I would have to lead the way and evacuate the room and all that would be left would be the presence of Jesus Christ. Then perfection would be in this room. And you know what? We are here and yet He chooses to stay here with us. Is that amazing? He came, Emmanuel, God with us. The Word became flesh and He dwelt among us. He moved into the neighborhood is what the message says. I love that. And so Genesis is all about these, these guys. You've got Adam who blows it and just a real quick glimpse to Noah who tries to fix it and it's basically a band-aid 
And then we've got Abraham. God is tapping him on the shoulder and he's an old guy and God promises him this guy who's married to a, an older lady and they don't have any children and his name is, his name is Exalted Father, Abram. And God says, I'm going to change your name to Abraham. I'm going to blow into it. I'm going to add a ha to you and an ah to Sarah. Ha ha. And guess what? When ha ha conceived and was born, his name was Isaac and his name means laughter. Everybody go ha ha. God added a ha and an ah to Abraham and to Sarah. And their names literally became for 25 years to some a mockery because they're too old to have babies. God let the promise become almost dry in the cupboard where they wondered whether it would ever happen. And God waited long enough so that they couldn't claim any kind of glory whatsoever that both of them had to say, there is no humanly way possible this could have happened. It had to be a miracle from God. No longer, no sooner did the kid grow up till God called him to go to the mountain and he raised the knife in figure and type. Isaac became literally the first picture of a father slaying his son as a sacrifice. The angel of the Lord stopped him. A ram's caught in the bush, which is another picture of Jesus Christ. In that moment, God reveals Himself as Jehovah Yireh, the Lord who sees and provides. And it's one more snapshot. It's a quick Polaroid. When you first snap that Polaroid, remember those cameras from the, from the 70s and the 80s that we all had, and maybe even the 90s, and you would take the picture, and it was so cool because you would, you would let it sit there, and you would then peel it open, and, and then you would just sort of watch everything get clearer. And that's the way God does in His promise. He'll speak something to you, and you can barely begin to see it because faith reaches in and sees the beginning of the picture and if you don't quit if you don't give up if you're tenacious if you're persevering in your faith and it's amazing how you keep taking steps of faith not walking by sight but walking by faith and the the picture becomes clearer and it's no longer a picture but it becomes the manifestation of the promise of God in your life that's what we see when God takes his prophetic Polaroid and he sort of gives us a glimpse of what's to come. And we've got 39 books of the Old Testament where that's happening over and over and over and over again. And God marches through Abraham's life telling him, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make you a blessing and I'm going to cause you to be the father of many nations. There's a, there's, there, there are nations of people in his loins and he's never had a baby yet. He says, through you every family on earth will be blessed. And that can only come through the answer of Jesus Christ who has continued to touch all of the nations of the earth. and So it's Adam and then it's Noah and then it's Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and we've got that son having this son and then finally Joseph comes along and wraps up the end of Genesis and he's rejected by his brothers. Another picture of Jesus, another type of Christ who comes to his own, his own receives him not and they sell him into slavery and they, they lie on him and they dip his coat in blood and they take it back and tell, him, tell his father that he's dead and actually God's going to take him on a 13 year journey on a ride that's going to bring him from the pit all the way up to the throne of Egypt. This is the very same. It's a picture of Jesus Christ who goes to the pit for you to pay for your penalty of sin and he's on the throne of God now providing the blessing of the Lord for all the universe. Genesis ends. It's an amazing story of forgiveness because Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, has just died. Joseph looks at his brothers who have come in and they're worried whether or not Joseph is going to be vindictive now and take revenge. He's going to be vengeful on them. Joseph, who has long since forgiven them, 
looks at his brothers that day and he says, you know what, guys? He says, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good so that the saving of many lives could take place. Knowing that they all served a God who worked all things after the counsel of His own will and a God who can make everything work together for your good because you are called according to His purpose and because you are a God lover. Genesis rolls into Exodus. It's amazing what begins to happen. Let me grab a couple of scriptures here. You get anything out of this today? Look with me. Jesus' own division of the scriptures. We'll find this in Luke chapter 24, verses 27 and 44. So Jesus gives us his own picture of how you can sum up the whole of the 39 books. We're going to abbreviate this a little bit. We're going to call this, give you the Reader's Digest version. It's sort of like 39 chapters in a great big huge novel. But actually the Bible is a collection of books itself. Luke chapter 24, verse 27 And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Does anybody know where this is happening in Luke 24? Jesus is walking along with some disciples on the road to Emmaus. The the baby is no longer in the manger. We're not talking about a 12-year-old who amazed the scholars in the temple. We're not talking about a 30-year-old who is recognized and divinely affirmed by his father with the heavens opening up and baptized by his cousin in the Jordan and the, the Holy Spirit sets down upon him like a dove would light on him and they, some hear it thunder, others hear, this is my beloved son, hear ye him. It's in, he is the one that I'm well pleased in. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about three and a half years of ministry. We're not talking about uh, 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 being tried before the court of the high priest and before Pontius Pilate and the various trials that Jesus went through or hanging on the cross for hours and the the heavens being rent open and the veil in the temple being destroyed, rent in two. We're not talking about three days in the grave. We are talking about a Savior who's just been resurrected and disciples literally are just, just reeling from what is going on. They've not yet seen Him and they're grieving in their hearts because they knew something was different and something was unique about this guy. The word man just doesn't get it. There were those among us that claimed He is the Messiah. Peter, his own disciple, said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are Yeshua HaMashiach. And and, and, and we knew that there was something that was so amazingly different about this man. But yet he died and they're still grieving because they don't know that he's alive yet. And Jesus comes alongside them walking and he opens the book. He opens the Old Testament. He begins in Moses and through the Psalms and the prophets. He tells them, interprets for them everything that is in that, walking on that journey. Man, would that be a journey to be able to... The Bible says their hearts were burning within them. Didn't even know who they were walking alongside. And then all of a sudden when their eyes were open, he had disappeared. But we have the opportunity to fast forward. We're, we're looking at 4,000 years of, of biblical history. We're looking at the unfolding of the prophetic and the giving of the law and the, the tabernacle in the wilderness and the, the first king and a new nation. We're seeing all of this develop in this amazing panoramic history-making life-changing story. And the crazy thing is, is that you and I have been written into the script. You have a part Oh, we're just some extras on the side that just show up just for a little breath of 70 or 80 or 90 years in this multiple millennial, multiple thousand year drama of the redemption of humankind in history. God the thinker who sat down at his cosmic typewriter and began to rattle out this amazing story saw your face in time in 2013 and wrote you into this story. 
Let's never forget, we are just bit parts. The central character of this story is this guy by the name of Jesus Christ. He is he's the one who experiences the tragedy. He's the one who lives through the triumph. He endures the greatness and the, the challenges of his position, his journey. So Jesus, in this moment, let's run back to this point in history, and he's on the Emmaus Road. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Look at this. Jesus gives the Old Testament three different divisions. Everybody say the law, Psalms, prophets. Okay. Um, Let's go ahead and get one more verse, and then I want you to put up the diagram for me. Psalm 40, verse 7. Psalm 40, verse 7. This is the anointed writing of David, and he's looking ahead into the future. He's grabbed a hold of a glimpse, his heavenly MP3, and his, his earbuds are plugged in, and he's hearing this about the one who's to come. And he starts to sing it. He says, Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. King James says, in the volume of the book. And I want you to see what we're talking about. What Jesus is actually saying to every one of these people. He says, boys, this whole thing is about me. It is consuming it from cover to cover. All 39 chapters. They don't have the New Testament yet. Jesus is walking in their midst. The gospel is being lived out in front of them at this point. And the prophets are telling the story. One of them gets a glimpse And they continue to talk the law and the psalm and the prophets. We see three divisions. Would you go ahead and put that diagram up for me? And I want you to refer to your notes if you would please. Because this will help in just a moment as we sort of bring this message down to a close. Some of you are just really grappling and wrestling with, I just don't get the Old Testament. What are are all of these separate stories? How do they have anything to do with Jesus? I, I I, I mean, I know that I've got a picture that this covenant nation of Israel is kind of an Old Testament picture of the church. You know, we, we see that in, in Exodus that, that, that God raises up a, a prophet, this guy by the name of, uh, of, of Moses. And some really unique similarities take place between him. He's, he, he's a baby at the time when Pharaoh tries to ch- kill all the male children in Egypt. Uniquely, the very same thing happens to Jesus when he's born. Herod, in his jealousy wanting to make sure that there's not another king of the Jews, exterminates all of the boy babies two years and under. Same thing happens that happened to Moses, yet he was saved alive for a purpose. Jesus is saved alive for a purpose. So we see this kind of what somebody might call a coincidence. We see those as prophetic types. They are symbols. They're pictures of. They're they're giving us a glimpse. It is setting us up for a hope for the fulfillment that is yet to come. And when you see this, you see the law, the Psalms, the prophets. I want you to see the green over here, the history. There's 17 history books, 17 prophecy books, like bookends. And then you've got the very middle right here. So on the left side, I want you to say law. The blue middle is Psalms. Say Psalms. And then the right yellow side is prophets. Here we go. So here we go again. Law, Psalms, prophets. Now within the law... If we get very, very technical, it's actually a bunch of history books. The basic law actually appears in the first five books of the Bible. And if you'll look at your diagram there, it's called the Pentateuch. Those are the books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's amazing. 
Here comes Moses. God delivers the children of Israel by the blood, the water, and the Spirit before they leave Egypt. And they've been slaves for over 400 years. Moses tells them, everybody must go buy a lamb. Go to the market, get a lamb. Because God is going to pass over you. When, when, when the death angel sees the application of the blood to the doorpost of your house, the death angel will pass over you. And you know what happened? The firstborn of all of Egypt died that night. Everybody who had the blood applied on the doorpost of the lentils of their homes, the death angel passed over them. And that was a prophetic picture. Because... Literally 2,000 years now before we see a Savior come and hang between two thieves, three crosses on a hill called Golgotha. Every Hebrew, while still in Egypt, has burnt into the collective memory of a whole national people, remembering the night that the whole land reeked of lamb's blood. And they had to cook the lamb and they had to eat it standing in a hurry because they knew they were about to be delivered and they remembered seeing three crosses, one over either side of the lintel of the door and one in the middle. Hyssop pulled from the wall, dipped in the lamb's blood, cross over the right side, cross over the left side. i got to remember I'm talking to you and it's reversed for you. Cross over the right, cross over the left, cross in the middle. Burned into their collective memory like a TV set that's been left on too long and when you turn it off you can see the image of it burned there in the screen. It was burned into the minds of the Hebrew nation. Three crosses, we're looking for that. Three crosses will deliver us. These images are just powerful. The prophecy continues to roll. When you look at this, you see 17 books of history. Now somebody says, why is the Bible not in chronological order? It would make so much sense if it were. And I just want to tell you, it is, but you just need to know how to find that chronology. Okay? Because I want you to see... Wisdom is in the middle. You've got Job and his suffering. You've got David in the Psalms writing about the tragedy and the triumph of the walking with God and crying out to the Lord in the midst of need and celebrating when God shows up and He pours abundance over His lack. When He delivers him from the enemy, when He quiets the mouth of an accusational Saul and He stops the spear and He kills the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. He's rejoicing in the presence of God because of the deliverance of the Lord. You raised my head up. You were the glory and the lifter of my head. I, I laid me down and slept and the Lord sustained me. When I was fearful, my enemies would take me. And some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God for they are brought down and fallen, but we are risen and stand upright. And David is anointed singing the praises of God and the deliverance of the Lord. In the middle of a cave, it's dark. In Psalm 27, he's running from Saul and it's pitch black in the back of it. And David speaks in faith and he says, The Lord is my light. In my salvation, whom shall I fear? And I imagine his voice cracked a little bit, knowing that he could die at any moment if God didn't come through for him. But in darkness, he said, The Lord is my light, the strength of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? In the very middle of your Bible, you've got five books that talk about the inner life, the, the, the praises of David to God, the wisdom of Solomon to us as we make decisions for life in the Proverbs and, and, and we've got the vanity of vanities in Ecclesiastes and we've got the love of loves in the Song of Songs. And all of those things have to do with our inner life and every one of these places gives us a, an interesting Polaroid that starts to develop to show us uh, an image or a side of the amazing Master, this Messiah, this, this Christ, this Savior, this King, this suffering servant that Isaiah saw in one place, this reigning King that he sees him in another. 
It's phenomenal when you open the book and you start to see that everything in it points to Him. We have the amazing privilege of putting on a set of glasses that are Christ-colored and we can look back through the whole Old Covenant and the Old Bible comes alive because we see that Jesus is not just an afterthought in the mind of God, but God's been planning for this and setting up hope in the hearts of His people for centuries that become millennia. And they're longing, they're saying, Oh, desire of nations, come. Bind our hearts that are fragmented and broken and put us back together through all of this. You see, this is built around pre-exile. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 1 Kings, 1 Chronicles. Look at this pattern. This is so amazing. Take this home. You, you, you've got two 17-book bookends. History on one side, prophecy on the other. Wisdom, inner life, heart. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, five in the middle. But each of these 17s are broken up into five, nine, and three. In the history part, we see the law of God, the character of God revealed. Then we start to see how this nation that is delivered by the blood with three crosses burned into their thinking are set into the wilderness and God takes them out there and tells them how to build this thing called the tabernacle of Moses, the tabernacle of His presence, the tabernacle in the wilderness. The book of Acts calls it the church in the wilderness. And every one of those pieces of furniture, the brazen altar is a picture of the sacrifice of Christ on which thousands upon thousands of bullocks and lambs and rams and goats and, and doves would, would shed their blood. Not one of them able to pay the price of sin, but we would be waiting and seeing a picture and smelling blood for millennia, waiting until one who would become the lasting once and for all sacrifice, whose once his blood is shed, it covers every sin in the past and every sin that will ever be committed in the future. Oh my, my. Come on, somebody put your hands together and give God some praise. Every one of those seven pieces of furniture becomes a picture of the work of Jesus Christ. And you know what? When God lined them up in the wilderness and we see it in the book of Numbers, we see this amazing temple, this, this, this tabernacle where the pillar of cloud guided them by day and the pillar of fire by night and, and you see three tribes to the north and three to the south and three to the east and three to the west. When you look at that, there's literally a, the campfires at night making a, making a blazing cross in the middle of the wilderness. It's a picture of what's yet to come. It's the hope of the Savior of God that God Himself would take the place of man and die on a cruel executionary cross. And the whole book is about Him. <coughs> Lo, it's written of me in the volume of the book. I come to do thy will, O God. Nine books before they go into Babylonian exile. Three after they come out. Then we've got guys that are prophesying. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Five major prophets. These are not pastors of mega churches because they were called major prophets. But their, their works were longer. Isaiah wrote 66 chapters. Which, by the way, I don't know if you know this, but it's set up just like the Bible. Isaiah literally is the Reader's Digest condensed version of the Bible. 66 chapters in Isaiah, 66 books in the whole Bible. And it's phenomenal because there's 39 chapters of judgment that coincide with 39 chapters of the Old Testament. And amazing, amazingly, the whole tone of the book changes in 40 when it says, Prepare ye the way. There is one coming. There's a picture of John the Baptist. The glory of the Lord will be revealed. And he says it three times. Comfort ye, comfort ye, comfort ye my people. Judgment has been for 39 chapters. And at the beginning of what would coincide with the beginning of the New Testament in Matthew, 
Isaiah starts to prophesy and he says, comfort, the comfort of the Lord is upon the people of God. Something is about to change. Anybody who would look at one little bit of this book and not realize that God's got this thing, God can handle the little bit of mess you've made in your life. He who, he who orchestrates behind the scenes and weaves the tapestry of history, he's very much concerned. He sees the big picture, but amazingly, he is, he is concerned about the intricate details of what you're facing this morning. It's amazing how these prophets grab a hold of it. Some of them that prophesied before they went into exile, and then while they're in it, and then when they come out. So it's that same kind of five, nine, and three, five, nine, and three, history on one side, prophecy on the other. This whole thing is the prophet's story. They keep getting a Polaroid, a little glimpse, another picture. I'm finished this morning, but I remember the one that is so powerful in Isaiah chapter 7. 700 years before a baby is born, Isaiah, God turns on the 80-inch heavenly Samsung, flat screen, 3D. God turns it on for Isaiah, and Isaiah starts to prophesy. He's, he's royal. He's the cousin of Uzziah, the king. And he says, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and shall bring forth a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? Everybody say, God with us. He kind of stays in that flow, and two chapters later, he's still talking about it. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, he says, His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and of the increase of his government and peace, his kingdom, there shall be no end. We're still seeing that multiply and grow. Jesus came in a manger in Bethlehem. You know what? Micah came along in that very same flow that Isaiah clicked into. He says in Micah chapter 5, in his little short book, he said, Oh, Bethlehem, how little and insignificant you are among the leaders of Israel, but out of you shall come the ruler of my people Israel. That was the place in the Bible that actually predicted, prophesied where the Savior would be born, in Bethlehem of Judea. It's all over the book. It tells us when He's coming. It tells Him the exact time that every one of the kings would, the scepter would not depart from the tribe of Judah until Shiloh come. That's another old covenant name for Jesus. And then He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. This stuff is too vast to be coincidental. It's too intricate to be simply put together by the mind of any infinite man or group of men. The Word of God is so crazily amazing. And if you can just open it up and say, God, speak to my heart, you end up not reading it. It starts to read your life. And it will change your life. It will get on the inside of you. and It will transform you from the inside out. Because the Word is not just black ink on white paper. The Word is a person and His name is Jesus. And He is the Spirit of which this whole thing is writing about. All of these things, so many of them that I can't even begin to scratch the surface, are all pointing to one event in the middle of history. Literally when time changes very same thing that happened at Passover. When the children of Israel left Egypt, after the blood was applied to the door, Moses said, this will be the beginning of months for you. In other words, we're going to start a whole new calendar because you're a whole new creation. You're a new nation now, already set free under the blood, bought. This is a beginning, literally. Do you know that Jesus became the Passover lamb and that all of history and time literally is 
hanging on the hinge of before he came, B.C., and A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord when he was born. He became the Passover lamb that started a whole, this will be the beginning of months. The calendar will change. Oh, come on, somebody. Are you hearing what I'm telling you? All of history has been altered because of the life of this amazing Savior. It's, it's not just about a beautiful tree. And didn't Susan and her team do a great job? It's gorgeous. But, but oh, don't let us get consumed with that and the stuff that's going to be under it. But let's, let's get consumed with the fact that that tree and the lights that are on it gives us a picture of the wood that our Savior is going to die on to pay the penalty for your sins and mine. This morning... There's no ending to a message like this. I, I, I can't even find a place. I just unplug and this is what I do. I just say this. Let me remind you here in this closing moment. Sin is the act of man attempting to substitute himself in the place of God. It's treason. God said, okay, you make that move and you're going to play that game. I'm going to outmove you and I'm going to have checkmate. God says, I'm going to substitute myself for you as a man. And I'm going to take your place and die. The just for the unjust, the godly for the ungodly, the righteous for the unrighteous, substituting the life of my son, Isaac, the one who had the knife raised, Abraham, the son of God that's been promised to him. The angel stopped him. He was literally raised up in a figure. It was a picture of the one who was going to actually follow through and give his life, lay down his life, and shed his blood. This morning you are here and you're breathing today because God is letting you breathe. The problems that you're facing, you have the ability to think through them because God has let you live another day. Your life right now is a gift. Stop looking at it through extremely negative circumstances and get your eyes lifted up to your redemption that draws nigh. Yeah, but you just don't have no idea what I've done, Pastor. Let me tell you something. God never deals with a man based on his history. He deals with a man based on his destiny. He deals with you based on where he's taking you and not where you've been. Because if we're truthful, the blood of Jesus has already dealt with the where you've been part. This morning, every head bowed, every eye closed.